You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Your Brain on Facts, the book. Want the facts without my voice? Ask your local bookseller for the Your Brain on Facts book. But if you want my voice without the facts, I am available for voiceover work and listeners get 50% off. No job too small. Email me, moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. When you think of big heists, your mind probably goes to bank vaults, jewelry, and fine art, maybe a casino, carefully organized plans by people dressed in black turtlenecks with lots of cool gadgets and close calls. What we remember as the daring heist of one of the world's most famous paintings was really neither of those things. The heist wasn't particularly daring, and the theft of Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa wasn't even noticed until well after it had happened. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. These days, the Mona Lisa, also called in Italy La Gianconda, and her famous enigmatic smile hang in a prominent place in the Louvre in Paris. It holds the Guinness World Record for the highest known insurance valuation in history at $100 million in 1962, so that would be about $800 million today. Over 6 million people go to see it each year. It's so popular that you can't even snap a quick selfie of it without having a few dozen other strangers' hands and cell phones in the frame. This popularity certainly wasn't the case when the painting was first hung in the Louvre in 1804, or for the century subsequent. Neither was it popular with critics or in the artistic elite, who often relegated it to the low end of da Vinci's work. It was basically just another painting. It was so unspecial, in fact, that it took the better part of 24 hours before staff even noticed the painting was missing in 1911. A handyman named Vincenzo Perugia was working in the museum, and he simply waited in a closet until after the museum had closed tucked the painting under his smock, and walked on out. He was unwittingly aided by a plumber also working in the museum, who unlocked a door for Perugia when he found himself stuck inside. The police were called and they searched the museum. The only sign they found of La Gianconda was its frame, laying on a staircase, though police did find some 21 other paintings in the museum that the curators had previously reported missing. The search went citywide, then national, then international. Ships were searched before they left France or after arriving in their port of call. A reward of over half a million dollars in today's money was offered. The Mona Lisa's picture was printed in newspapers all over the world. It became a sort of Mona Lisa mania. The theft of this single painting served to spawn multiple criminal enterprises. People on the wrong side of the law knew that 
those with more money than morals would want to buy La Gioconda. A pair of confidence men from Belgium hired a small army of forgers to make high-quality fakes, which they then sold to select buyers around the globe. They made sure their buyers were unlikely to ever meet, and rested soundly knowing that no one would let on that they had purchased the most famous stolen painting in the world. Though, today, one of them would probably take a selfie with it. The huge reward and the number of fakes in circulation meant the police were inundated with leads. For two years, they searched tirelessly, but fruitlessly. The 60-man-strong force even interviewed Perugia twice, but decided he couldn't be the criminal mastermind they were looking for. Not only did those two years not yield the Mona Lisa, the police didn't even find the forgeries. The head of the Paris police retired in shame. Did Perugia get an enormous payday for the stolen painting? People were soon to learn that he didn't steal it for money. When Perugia approached a museum in Florence to sell them the painting, the museum's director called the police instead. After his arrest, Perugia stated, I worked in the Louvre, making frames for paintings stolen from Italy by France. Every day I passed La Gianconda and swore I would return it to its rightful home. He seemed convinced he would be heralded as a hero. This was sadly not the case, but the Italian courts were sympathetic, giving him only a year in prison for the world-famous theft. These days, La Gianconda sits behind more bulletproof glass than the Pope, could just as easily have been any other Italian-born work. If a different one of Leonardo's works had been stolen, said Noah Charney, professor of art history and author of The Thefts of the Mona Lisa, then that would have been the most famous work in the world, and not the Mona Lisa. There was nothing that really distinguished it per se until it was stolen. The theft is what really skyrocketed its appeal and made it a household name. A quick aside for an art theft story that, while not as famous, is no less memorable. After a pair of Spanish con men discovered the Goya painting they had purchased was a forgery, they tried to recoup their losses by reselling the painting to an alleged Arab sheik for 4 million euros, using the same certificate of authenticity that had fooled them. A mysterious Italian middleman charged the Spaniards 300,000 euros to broker the deal. The two con men traveled to Turin to receive 1.7 million Swiss francs as a down payment and pay the broker the 300,000 euros, which they had borrowed from a friend. However, when the con men attempted to exchange the Swiss francs in a bank in Geneva, it was discovered they had been given photocopies of Swiss francs. The fake painting had been paid for with fake money, though the money they gave the broker was very real, the equivalent of $400,000. To make matters even worse, upon leaving Switzerland, the two were detained by French customs, who discovered the fake Swiss francs in their suitcase and informed the Spanish authorities. The painting was also confiscated. Picture, if you will, an artist that is more famous for his techniques than for the art he created. He took his teacher's method and not only created a small empire from it, he took business away from said teacher, moving quickly from competitor to industry dominator. His teacher was given credit in the beginning. 
the public was allowed to make what assumptions they would about where the technique came from, as long as they kept tuning into the show and buying the products. That artist's name? I am sorry to break this to you, dear listener. It was Bob Ross. Bob Ross, the famously soft-spoken, afro-headed host of The Joy of Painting, was taught his famous wet-on-wet fast-painting technique by a German expat named Bill Alexander, who actually had his own PBS painting show called The Magic of Oil Painting, which ran from 74 to 82. Alexander's show, like The Joy of Painting, which ran from 83 to 94, was basically an advertisement for his painting supply business, Alexander Art. Bob Ross began his adult life in the Air Force, where he would rise to be Master Sergeant and was stationed in Alaska, which is no doubt why he painted so many snow-covered vistas. He was constantly searching for an art teacher who could actually teach him to paint when he took a class with Bob Alexander. The wet-on-wet painting technique was an epiphany for Ross. The Joy of Painting started airing on PBS in 1983. At first, things were pleasant between Ross and Alexander, with Alexander even filming a segment to pass the torch to his former student. The Joy of Painting was generating so much business for Alexander Art that they couldn't keep up with demand, and someone, that person's identity has been lost to history, suggested to Bob Ross that he should start his own art supply company. After Bob Ross, Inc. became a $15 million industry of how-to books, videos, and art supplies, things between the two men changed. In a 1991 New York Times profile, Ross declined to mention his painting teacher because, quote, he is our biggest competitor. He betrayed me, Alexander said in an interview. I invented Wet on Wet. I trained him and he's copying me. What bothers me is not just that he betrayed me, but that he thinks he can do it better. Full disclosure, Alexander did not invent Wet on Wet or A la Prima. It dates back at least as far as Van Eck, Van Gogh, and Monet. So why was Ross able to eclipse Alexander to such an extent? It may come down to something as simple as likability. Alexander was passionate and animated, prone to rambling and even singing off-key. Ross, on the other hand, was laid-back and avuncular, a non-threatening peacenik. Ross saw this distinction, as did PBS station managers, who realized, as the New York Times reported, Ross's expanding circle of viewers were, for the most part, not even painting, nor did they have any plans to start. They watched The Joy of Painting simply because it was the most relaxing show on television. It is unfailingly simple, a three-camera production with a black backdrop, and, at Ross's insistence, no edits. Ross wears the same thing every time, blue jeans and a John Henry shirt, and in 26 minutes, not only completes a painting, but also, in his soft, lullaby voice, Murmurs familiar Bobisms like happy little trees and what the heck, let's give him a little friend over there and there are no mistakes, only happy accidents. The show was so nice to listen to that it was even popular with blind viewers. Obscuring and outselling his teacher aside, the internet isn't wrong with its love affair for Bob Ross. Not only could he be called the OG of ASMR, 
But you've got to love a guy who once did an entire episode working only in shades of gray because he got a letter from a fan who said he couldn't take up painting because he was colorblind. Ross's trademark afro was actually a perm that he'd initially gotten to avoid the cost of properly maintaining his crew cut, and then when the show took off, found himself basically stuck with it. People would often tell Ross that his show put them to sleep. Did he mind? No. He enjoyed that just as much as the people who said that he'd inspired them to paint. And one time, he did the show with a tiny baby squirrel in his pocket. So you gotta love that. From art, we move to science. What do you think is the worst part of working on a group project? Is it trying to come to a meeting of minds on what you're going to do? Is it that person who accepts their share of the assignment and then doesn't do anything? Or is it when someone takes all the credit for one of the greatest advances in our understanding of biology? Probably the third one. That's what happened to the discoverer of the double helix shape of DNA, English chemist and X-ray crystallographer Rosalind Franklin. There's probably no other woman scientist with as much controversy surrounding her life and work as Rosalind Franklin. Asterisk for Marie Curie's love life, but that's another show. Franklin was responsible for much of the research and discovery work that led to the understanding of the structure of deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. Born in 1920, Franklin excelled at science and attended one of the few girls' schools in London that taught physics and chemistry. When she was 15, she decided to become a scientist, and despite her father's stance against higher education for women and his wish that Rosalind become a social worker, she enrolled at Newnham College, Cambridge in 1938. She held a graduate fellowship for a year, but quit in 1942 to work at the British Coal Utilization Research Association, where she made fundamental studies of carbon and graphite microstructures. Coal was not only important for power, but charcoal was a key component in gas masks. Her research was her contribution to the war efforts of World War II and was the basis of her doctorate in physical chemistry, which she earned from Cambridge University in 1945. After Cambridge, she spent three productive years in a laboratory in Paris, where she learned X-ray diffraction techniques. X-ray diffraction is an important, non-destructive method for analyzing all kinds of matter, from fluids to powders to crystals. The technique involved bombarding the sample with X-rays. The electron cloud of the atoms in the sample bends the X-rays slightly. This makes a picture of the molecule that can be seen on a screen. In 1951, Franklin returned to England as a research associate in John Randall's laboratory at King's College, London. It was in Randall's lab that she crossed paths with Maurice Wilkins. She and Wilkins led separate research groups, although both were concerned with DNA. Randall assigned Franklin a DNA project that had already begun, but no one had worked on for months. Wilkins was away at the time, and when he returned, he misunderstood her role behaving as though she were an assistant, disappointing but not surprising given the climate. Only males were allowed in the university dining room, for example, and after hours, Franklin's colleagues went to men-only pubs. Nevertheless, Franklin persisted on the DNA project. 
Her techniques allowed her to take better images of the structure of DNA than anyone ever had before. J.D. Bernal, scientist who pioneered the use of X-ray crystallography in molecular biology, called her X-ray photographs of DNA the most beautiful X-ray photographs of any substance ever taken. Without Franklin's knowledge or permission, Wilkins showed these images and her data to James Watson and Francis Crick, who were themselves working on DNA projects. That photo was essential to the findings they published in 1953, again, without Franklin's knowledge. She was aware of their research, but had no idea that her work had been subsumed into it, as she was not credited at all. The closest she got was the journal Nature citing her work to bolster Watson and Crick's claims. Rosalind Franklin continued working until her death from ovarian cancer in 1958. Four years later, Watson and Crick were awarded a Nobel Prize for their discovery. They shared the award with Wilkins, but made no mention of Franklin. Admittedly, Nobel Prizes aren't awarded posthumously, so we'll never know if she would have finally received the credit she had been denied during her lifetime. But credit where credit is due, I have to give thanks to people who have left reviews lately, both for the podcast and for the book. On the various podcast players, Icemen8888 said, How can you not love this show? Five stars. Love Moxie. Love you too, Iceman. And John Ravensbottom, who deserves five stars of his own for that amazing surname, said, This show is fantastic. Brilliantly written, paced, and presented. Each episode contains so much depth that they are easily heard again and again with something new coming from each listen. Moxie is very talented. Her usage and delivery are perfectly suited to the material. I look forward to learning more fascinating facts and amusing anecdotes from this incredibly professional and entertaining talent. Also, looking forward to getting her book. I do hope that you enjoy it thoroughly, John. As did Bill S., who left a review on Amazon. Need nerdy knowledge now? You're in the right place, friend. This is your source for the coolest little-known facts and corrections on everything you thought you understood. The author writes as she speaks, with a delightful blend of humor, wit, and intelligence. Thank you so much, Bill S., for that. If you would like to hear your opinion read on the show, leave a review for the book on Amazon or Goodreads, which frankly is still Amazon, or leave a review for the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. 
With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. The theft of intellectual property from one person is inarguably bad, but it pales in comparison to stealing the life savings of thousands of people. Compounding the economic crisis of 2008 was Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. He and his accomplices stole as much as $20 billion, with a B, from investors. They'd been at it for so long that, to this day, no one is sure exactly when they started. What we can be sure of is that most of the people Bernie Madoff bilked will see little or no money ever come back. Outside of really bad fraud, What is a Ponzi scheme, anyway? The basic mechanism is to promise your investors irresistible returns and take their money. Then you promise amazing returns to a second group of investors, take their money, and use it as the returns for the first group, who will hopefully give you even more money to invest in huge bunny ears, now that they see that the system works. Lot of bunny ears for this. Then you get a third group of investors and give their money to group two, all while keeping back a tidy sum for yourself. Lather, rinse, repeat. The word Ponzi itself is a proper noun, the family name of a charismatic Italian immigrant who lived in Boston in 1920. Charles Ponzi stood only five foot two, but he was a giant in his community, though only briefly. Ponzi claimed that he had figured out a way to cash in on the chaotic post-World War I economic conditions of Europe by buying international postal union coupons from certain countries where they were discounted, then redeeming them at full value in the States. For example, a coupon could be bought in Germany for a penny and redeemed in the U.S. for a nickel. Ponzi claimed he had an army of agents scouring Europe to buy up all the available discounted coupons. In 1919 and 20, Ponzi took in upwards of $15 million in small investments from 40,000 people, many of them Italian-Americans and recent immigrants. People lined up around the block to get through the Pie Alley entrance to Ponzi's Securities Exchange Commission and hand over their hard-earned savings. The streets are paved with gold, right? Everyone gets rich in America. Well, Ponzi certainly did. He bought a hundred suits with matching shoes. He smoked copious cigars through diamond-studded holders. His mansion in Lexington had air conditioning and a heated pool. He was just shy of lighting those cigars with hundred-dollar bills while he propped his feet up on a poor investor. His life of Riley came to an end in the summer of 1920. After an investigation, the feds declared that every single postal coupon redeemed in the entire country by everyone wouldn't account for even a fraction of the profits Ponzi claims to have made. A public relations agent who worked for Ponzi told the Boston Globe, The man is a complete financial idiot. He can barely add. He sits around with his feet on his desk, talking complete gibberish about postal coupons. The publicist further claimed that Ponzi had never once issued or received a foreign financial draft. 
On Monday, August 9th, a bank commissioner declared Ponzi's accounts were overdrawn. On Wednesday, it was revealed that Ponzi had served prison time in Canada for forgery and in Atlanta for smuggling illegal aliens. Investors swarmed his office, desperately trying to get their money back. By that Friday, Ponzi was in custody. In the face of over 10,000 creditors demanding $4 million, Ponzi declared bankruptcy. He was later sentenced to five years in federal prison for 86 counts of mail fraud, since he had mailed his victims letters to report how well their investments were doing. He served about three and a half of those years, then got released to face state charges, for which he received a sentence of nine more years. But before he could go to jail, he jumped bail and tried to start new scams in Florida and Texas. You would think that the government would have learned their lesson about trusting this guy. Eventually, though, his time on the lam ran out and he served his whole sentence. Upon his release, Ponzi was deported to Italy, where the man who was more clever than he was smart tried to defraud Benito Mussolini. The rest of his life was a string of less successful cons and jail sentences, until his death in a charity hospital in Brazil in 1949. And as for our modern Ponzi, Bernie Madoff is currently earning $40 a month in prison, wiping down electronics, and is scheduled for release in 2039. Oh, excuse me, 2139. Thankfully, I know some folks who are a tad more trusting, the supporters over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. People must have been really impressed with me embarrassing myself by singing the names of the patrons the other day, because in the past week, four new members have joined. So welcome and thank you to Thomas, Brandy, Ronnie, and Alyssa. Look forward to hearing your names sung off-key, eventually, probably. For a little bit longer, members of all levels will receive all rewards, which include ad-free episodes if the show has a sponsor that week, Bonus mini-episodes, such as the most recent one about the disaster that was opening day at Disney, and Spot the Lie, which is presently suspended while we recast for a fourth host. Fellow podcasters who want to get on, get in on that, by all means, at me on the social media. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod. So I'm doing something a little different to take the place of Spot the Lie for September, I've recently begun narrating audiobooks as I get into doing voice work, and there was a chapter in one of the books that I just had to share with somebody. And that somebody was Paul from The Varmints Podcast, which I'm assuming you're already subscribed to. So be there later this month to hear Paul's reaction to one of the most staggering things I have ever read. Patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Much in the way the Mona Lisa would not have been famous if not for a theft, it was theft by the late R. Lee Ermey that made him arguably the world's most famous Marine. When we first meet Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Stanley Kubrick's 1987 Vietnam epic Full Metal Jacket, he's introducing recruits to the Marine Corps boot camp. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. Thus begins a six-minute-long rapid-fire harangue, 
much of which was improvised. As a teenager, the Kansas native was arrested twice for criminal mischief. The court gave him a choice, prison or the military. Ermey chose the latter and joined the Marine Corps, where he served for 11 years, including 14 months in Vietnam, and two tours of duty stationed in Okinawa, Japan. Eventually, he became a drill sergeant, which was one reason he was so excelled in the role as Drill Sergeant Hartman. After retiring from the military, Ermey decided on a different career path and began taking acting classes. He once told an interviewer that he devised a plan to break into Hollywood, use his knowledge from his military service to become a technical director on certain films, then, once in the crew, show the filmmakers that he should be starring in their movies. The plan actually worked three times, scoring him the first three roles of his career, a sergeant in Sidney J. Fury's The Boys in Company C, a helicopter pilot in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, and Hartman. The role of Hartman originally belonged to actor Tim Colseri, but he tired himself out after only 30 minutes of yelling at extras during a videotaped rehearsal. Ermey stepped in and took over. His energy never let up. Colseri ended up playing a door gunner instead. Here is where the story starts to spin off a bit into modern legend territory. Some accounts claim that Arlie Ermey went to director Stanley Kubrick and asked for the role of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, since, in his opinion, the actors on set weren't up to the job. When Kubrick declined, Ermey barked an order for Kubrick to stand up when he was spoken to, and the director reflexively obeyed. Ermey got the role. Another account holds that Ermey persuaded Kubrick to cast him by making a homemade audition tape that showed him screaming insults with a stone face as tennis balls and oranges were thrown at his head. Once he landed the role, according to The Guardian, he rehearsed the same way. Kubrick's assistant, Leon Vitali, would sit across from Ermey in a 50-foot-long room and hurl tennis balls at him while he practiced his lines. I had to catch the ball and throw it back to Leon as fast as possible, and say the lines as fast as possible, Ermey told the New York Times in 1987. If I were to slur a word, drop a word, or slow down, I had to start over. I had to do it 20 times without a mistake. Leon was my drill instructor. For the most part, the lines he was practicing weren't actually in the script. Ermey improvised about half of his dialogue, drawing on his memories of the service. Inventing those insults wasn't particularly hard for him. That was just Ermey being a drill instructor. My main objective was basically to just play the drill instructor the way the drill instructor was and let the chips fall where they may, Ermey said in a History Channel interview. You can ask any drill instructor who was down there in 65 or 66. That's exactly how the drill instructor's demeanor was. There were no punches pulled. Think you could think of as many insults as are Lee Ermey? You may want to think again. According to Stanley Kubrick, Ermey had produced 150 pages of insults. Though a kind and gentle family man in real life, Ermey would play essentially the same character in over 100 projects, as varied as HBO's horror staple Tales from the Crypt, the short and really underappreciated sci-fi series Space Above and Beyond, and more family-friendly fare like the Toy Story movies, where he voiced the little green army man, Sarge. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But I will leave you with a bonus super geek fact. 
In the same way that Kirk never said, beam me up, Scotty, and Sherlock Holmes never said, elementary, my dear Watson, the phrase, full metal jacket, does not appear in the book the film was based on. It made its way into the script after Kubrick read it in a gun catalog. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.